Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I am delighted to welcome into the podcast studio Professor Gary Butler, paediatrician and endocrinologist at UCL and clinical professor of child health at University College London. Gary and his colleagues recently wrote an absorbing leading article on the assessment of sport of children and adolescents with gender dysphoria. Gary, welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Thank you. I have lots of questions. Gary, perhaps we could start with the definition of gender dysphoria. Well, gender dysphoria is probably different from dysmorphia. There are different terms. Dysmorphia being a reaction or upset with the body and its development. But gender dysphoria is in relation to specifically those factors which uh, pertain to the biological sex of, of a young person. And it's a descriptive term, generally referring to a discontent with their birth assigned gender and an identification with the gender other than that which they're born. Now, classically, it's been a male to female, female to male, although these days we are seeing much more variations in gender expression, uh, either fluid, not fixed, often referred to as non-binary. And that makes sometimes the assessment process a little bit more challenging. But it's really the dislike of their body, uh, their um, how it's developing, how things are working. And also a lot of the young people will show evidence of identifying with the opposite gender, such as the way in which they dress, um, how they choose their friends, the toys in which they use, and uh, also just how their, their fantasy in the way they play. That's, that's how things often begin to be recognised and the families recognise that the child is gender identification is different. There are a number of things, and, and it's a question of having a number of those features together, which allows the sort of diagnosis. Although diagnosis is probably the wrong term, it's it's probably, and labelling is probably the wrong term, it's it's probably the um, recognition would be a better, a, yes. a, a better type term to use, I should think. Your paper mentions an upsurge in, um, let's say, recognition um, of children and young people with gender dysphoria a few years ago. Can you talk a little bit about the epidemiology? Well, certainly, as far as the cause of the whole uh, rise in number of people identifying, we we and and others and uh, and the media have been trying to work out why that is uh, and trying to, is it to do with the liberalisation of the understanding of gender uh, and the perhaps the the fact that people can be variant in their gender is a bit more accepted these days. But we have certainly seen a doubling for the last sort of seven, eight years, year on year, of the number of young people presenting. I mean, firstly, to the National Gender Identity Service in the UK, which is based through the Tavistock and Portman Trust in two sites in the north and the south of the country, which which will receive the referrals initially. It's not something that will, it by and large, comes directly to uh, the paediatric medical team. But of those, there are increasing number of young people who are then moving towards requesting physical intervention and coming to the paediatric medical clinics. And we've seen sort of over the last um, year there have been 2,000 referrals to the assessment process of uh, children and young people under the age of 18. And the proportion who request uh, endocrine intervention will vary very much depending on the age at which they present. But it is big and we're also seeing about uh, a change in the proportions. It used to be slightly more birth-registered boys who would come forward and be questioning their gender. Now, 
in the in UK, together with many other developed countries, we're seeing that two thirds of those presenting are actually born as female and are uncomfortable with their gender one way or the other and wishing to perhaps change that, which is extraordinary. And to my knowledge, yet there isn't a satisfactory explanation. Fascinating. Mm. How do you go about the, the initial and subsequent assessments? I think it's most important that we work as a multidisciplinary team at this, that no uh, practitioner, particularly a medical paediatrician, should work uh, by themselves. The assessment needs to take place of whether the child actually is dysphoric, uh, very much from a developmental and an exploratory approach, working with the child and young person and their family to see whether they their manifestation of gender dysphoria is actually something else going on in their in their life and their mind and that's the way in which it is expressed and that's why this very much a developmental assessment approach is very important and it's something that is done through the psych the psychosocial assessment through the mental health clinicians linked to the gender identity team who will talk with the young person and their family at the minimum of four occasions over six months and often longer and for those who are presenting much younger, this will be a relationship which goes on for many, many years as the child grows and develops and they become more certain in who they are or, and, or, or perhaps more certain in who they're not. And that's how things develop. But it's very much at that stage that's how the, uh, the, the whole process begins. And it's only subsequently where a process of recognition of true gender dysphoria and perhaps a... A time comes when there is such distress that the, uh, when puberty has begun and the changes of puberty have happened at that point in time where the decision about a physical intervention can take place and that's when the medical paediatric team become involved. I understand. Yeah. Oh, and what does, what does the, the, the assessment involve in terms of specific investigations and, um, and involvement? Well, I think when when they're with the mental health team it's really exploring into into the family the birth issues around potential abuse physical sexual um, family dynamics uh, how the young person's developed how they've got on at school um, how how their social and emotional relationships and their own development has taken place that's part of that I mean, when they come to towards the uh, the medical team well originally because it was uh, still rare then it still is relatively rare now but it, the approach was as if you had something very unusual that you had to go through a whole diagnostic battery rather similar to if you've got a, a child presenting with a disorder of sex development things like genetic hormonal tests and, and scans Im imaging all needs to be done and that's what happened initially so we've systematically looked at that and what needs to be done. And we haven't really found any physical abnormalities, uh, hormonal abnormalities, chromosomal abnormalities, looking at n nearly 500 uh, young people presenting to the service over the last sort of, uh, eight to ten years. And so we've really drawn it down to um, a, just a need for a, a child and adolescent general health assessment, which means a, a general clinical overview a brief clinical examination. We are required to do some form of pubertal staging because interventions can't take place by international agreement until puberty has started. So we need to do some form of TANA staging assessment. But other things are really just taking basic hormone profiles 
and routine blood such as full blood count, uh, knees, LFTs. Many of the young people have quite unusual eating patterns, are quite often vitamin deficient, particularly in iron, and a lot and vast majority of people are vitamin D deficient because part of the dysphoria is not wanting to go outside and therefore not going outside, no sunshine, so you're vitamin D deficient. So everybody gets on vitamin D. <laughs> So it's really basic things that we do rather than anything specific in, in the first instance. Yes. I, no, I noticed you mentioned in, in the paper that uh, the psychological assessment, it, uh, it, it's often the case, well, there's a, a relatively high proportion of children with autism or Asperger. I think that's why it's really important to have a, a team which recognises that uh, young people who are... Um, having certain particular personality traits and, and because there's no simple diagnostic test for, for autism or, or within the spectrum, it very much is um, a range and a tendency. And it, there may well be etiological factors which link dysphoria, gender dysphoria with autism because of the, the higher prevalence that one can see. And that's something that is clearly being looked at at the present time. And also it seems to be that those perhaps who are in the autistic spectrum and present with gender dysphoria, they're the, the young people who are least likely to change, and they perhaps are some of the ones who are, who are expressing the most extreme distress with their body and their pubertal development. So it requires a joint managing, and not just on a, from a diagnostic perspective, when you are intervening with physical, um, physical hormonal treatment, it requires ongoing assessment throughout that as well. So it's not just a one-off uh, approach. It's yeah. very much a teamwork all the way through. Yes, that comes through across the whole mm. through the whole paper. Yeah. So, in terms of interventions, once recognition has been made, um, what are the, the the first steps, and then subsequent, and then long longer term steps? Well, the things that we have to intervene with within the endocrine field are around the management of puberty using standard treatments such as gonadotrophin releasing hormone analogues. Uh, the depot preparations which are used uh, have been used for many years now to handle precocious puberty um, they are the, that's the mainstay of, of the first intervention it is regarded in itself not just as a step to the future but actually as an intervention in its own right to allow further assessment ideally to relieve the distress of a developing body and and some of the functions in particular um, you know, breast development and menstruation if that's occurring in, in, a, in a birth registered female and uh, erections, ejaculations etc in, in an adolescent birth registered male and hair growth these are some of the things which are often the focus of some of the dysphoria and if that can be sort of slowed down or stopped that as far as we understand gives us this opportunity for further exploration it's um a good treatment, I suppose, and many of the young people looking back are glad they had that treatment and glad they had that time to reflect on what should be the next step. Although it can cause frustration, particularly if you've got an older adolescent who's gone through all their pubertal development, and that sudden withdrawal of sex hormones can create some symptoms such as hot flushes, um, vascular instability, uh, tiredness, and even low mood at times. So it's not perfect, but it's the best of what we have at the present time. And, and the other stage, I suppose, is, is really 
a major, major decision-making step is whether you actually then start changing your body with sex hormone treatment, sometimes called referred to as cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming sex hormone treatment. That is using testosterone in a biological female and estradiol in a biological male to induce some of the secondary sex characteristics associated with their identified gender. The way in which we approach that treatment is very much akin to what we do in routine paediatric endocrine practice with the induction of puberty, managing growth and puberty, using a staged approach, um, using the, the, the regular treatments that are available, either injectable or transdermal testosterone or oral or transdermal estrogen. Okay, that's that. That all makes sense. And there's a there's a there's a gap between the start of the initiation of the the blockers, the gonadotropin yeah. analogues. I think it's in, it's a. Some people argue that uh, it, this shouldn't take place, and there should be an option for young people to start straight on cross-sex hormones. Now that does occur in adult practice, and that occurs in the older adolescents in some other uh, European and and American countries. But we don't have any experience in that, and whereas it may be right for some people, certainly we like that decision to make permanent steps in in your gender uh, gender change to be much more assured. And of course, the other thing is not just acquiring secondary sex characteristics; it's the loss of your natural fertility, which is it can be a big worry, and we don't know how that's going to be taken or accepted later on in life, many 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds are really unconcerned about their their procreation or what's going on. There's so many other things around, but you never know what their their state of mind or or their perception is going to be in 10, 15, 20 years time. And in in extrapolating that, is there anything you can do in terms of harvesting, burn freezing, and so on? This is a big topic at the present time for a lot of discussion and moving forward, particularly in the uh, fertility provision uh, circles. There's been a a recent review from the British Fertility Society published about what should be available for uh, all young people, those who are undergoing uh, cancer treatment and also those who are transgender. But we do counsel people, once puberty has started, about this whole possibility of um, we try to use neutral terms. We talk about uh, reproductive cells rather than egg or sperm uh, to to av- avoid the dysphoria. But to, try, yes, to, to ensure that they have that opportunity to make a decision about whether they want to uh, conserve their uh, reproductive cells or not. For those who are trans female, i.e. born as males, once they're under puberty and if they're able to go through the process of physical stimulation to store sperm, then that is possible, that is that is available. It's slightly more complex for those born and registered females, trans males, who wish to have oocyte re- uh, retrieval. That's rarely done before the age of 16, and that requires um, ovarian stimulation with gonadotrophins and then a sort of semi-invasive a- approach when the oocytes are removed, and some people find that difficult. And the funding around, the, around certainly the UK particularly is very patchy. And that's why I think there's a move forward, certainly from the fertility circles. And also we need a bit of a push from the, the um, support groups and society in general. But whenever these things are raised, often in the popular press, then there's quite a lot of vitriolic uh, response anti uh, 
the use of public funds to support trans, trans people, but it, it would appear they have just as much right to conserve their facility as anybody else, really. What have you found about long-term, let's say, adaptation? That might be the wrong expression because they've already made an ad- ad- adaptation. But the old, the oldest adolescents in your cohort must be in their mid-twenties now, perhaps? Yes, and some beyond, because the uh, gender identity service began in the 90s. So, but at that stage, there are relatively few. And the majority, once they leave uh, child and adolescent services, will move on to one of the adult gender identity clinics, who will then uh, help support the young adult at that point in time with their hormone treatment. And if they want any then surgical intervention, on the chest, chest reconstruction or, or genital reconstruction, that's supported. But once that treatment is completed, the people are discharged back to the care of their GP and that for lifelong care. So it's not as though there is any currently any sort of follow-up programme available. Also, one of the other challenges is that when people are changing their, changing their gender, they often change a number of their... NHS registration number, passport number, or, or uh, national insurance number, all their, their their identification numbers will change, which actually can make tracking, particularly through the NHS central register, are quite difficult to work out morbidity, mortality rates, and etc. And because numbers were certainly from those uh, transitioning in childhood are relatively small, the big bulge having come in the last sort of five to eight years. We still are in the infancy of the follow-up programme. We are starting follow-up programmes. And it appears, certainly from those who've transitioned to one of the major adult services uh, in the last five years or so, that probably the majority will remain within their transition gender, request further help, and seem to be happy in in that, and that they have provided the support and the assessment has been correct. They have been supported in their decision and and that's what appears to be what they wish. But in terms of the longer-term outcome in detail, that's something that we're trying to work on at the present time. And the balance and the change in the way people are presenting is also different, whereas it was very much diametrically opposite, male to female, female to male. Now we're seeing the emergence of people who whose gender expression is much more fluid or not fixed, non-binary, genderqueer are some of the terms that are used. And whether that means that uh, those people will wish to have access to hormonal or surgical interventions and how that impinges on their long-term health and their long-term psychiatric morbidity, we don't know. I think that will be a whole different ballgame, really. Mm, fascinating. In terms of general paediatricians, what, what, what would your advice be if they see someone in an outpatient clinic who comes for ostensibly different reasons but during the course of whose consultation it transpires that there is this agenda to whom do they turn i think that's a it's a very important point because it, it may be that someone is uh, a, a child is presenting with something else and then the whole issue around their uh, their gender expression will crop up at that point in time I think it's being open ourselves, particularly as paediatricians and other medical health professionals, to be aware that that can happen. It's not unusual. And throughout childhood, there is often a lot of gender exploration going on. We know that the vast majority of those who are presenting 
with some form of gender dysphoria under the age of 10 will not continue their transition. But I think it's a question of being understanding and exploring and finding out what the young person wants. And if there is this question of a, a marked recognition of a disquiet or upset with their, their gender, to be able then to refer through to the, the National Service, the Gender Identity a development service which will take referrals from anybody or any health professional of any background throughout the country. I mean, the, the other situation as far as paediatricians go is that sometimes we come across young people who are presenting in a different gender or who have transitioned who have another medical problem that we're dealing with, such as asthma, tummy pain or whatever. And how to manage that and how to manage those um, consultations is also challenging, making sure we're using the person's right name, their preferred gender and pronouns, because that actually helps very much towards establishing a good relationship. We paediatricians generally are good at relating with children and their families, but using that right approach in a, in a trans child is actually really important as well, can help the consultation go, even if it's about an ordinary paediatric medical problem. Carrie, that's been fascinating. I could talk for several hours about all this. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a, a pleasure and thank you for uh, the time. Thank you. For those of you interested in hearing the podcast again or reading about this, please do reference Gary's paper, The Assessment of Sport of Children and Adolescents with Gender Dysphoria on adc.bmj.com.